Welcome back to PI Perspectives. Matt brings Brandon Fortuno to the show today. Matt and Brandon met at a Nally midterm conference in Tampa, Florida this past January. Brandon gave a phenomenal presentation on social media ethics to all attendees. Brandon joins us today to touch on some of the topics he covered during his talk. This guy actually makes ethics interesting. Brandon's a PI and a lawyer. He brings a great balance to the do's and don'ts while we do our research online. This episode is brought to you by Crosstrack's case management software. Crosstracks is case management software that is built by investigators for investigators. The robust features allows organizations to manage any size caseload. The system can be customized for all types of cases including criminal defense, process service, domestics, background, surveillance, and more. Start your free trial today at Crosstracks.co and use the promo code PIP20 to receive your second month for free. Now let's welcome Brandon to the program. Here's your host, private investigator, Matt Spare. And welcome everybody to the next episode of PI Perspectives. This week we have Brandon Fortuno online today calling from Florida. And uh, I'm so happy to have him here. I actually met uh, Brandon a couple weeks ago for the NALI conference down in St. Petersburg. He put on a fantastic presentation with regards to social media research and ethics. So, of course, after the he was done, I hunted him down and wouldn't leave him alone until uh, we exchanged cards and you know asked him to come on the show to talk about it. So, welcome, Brandon. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Matt. I'm happy to be here. Tell me a little bit about your background. How how did you get into this business? Um, how long have you been doing it? And um, tell me how you got started. Sure. I'm the son of a Secret Service agent, so law enforcement investigations has always kind of uh, been in the family. I started actually as a bailiff in my early 20s. Did that for a few years uh, with the sheriff's office in Jacksonville. Uh, after that, I went to patrol. Uh, I was a patrolman for about six years uh, while I was uh, slowly working on my undergraduate degree. The original plan had just been to be a police officer my whole my whole life, but that uh, few years that I did as a bailiff before I was eligible to uh, to be a patrolman. Uh, it really shaped my my interest in the law, my interest in uh, doing more than um, than uh, than law enforcement. I, I knew at that point that I I ultimately wanted to be a practicing attorney. And so once I got my bachelor's degree, uh, I left the sheriff's office, uh, moved to the Tampa Bay area, and uh, and started uh, law school. It was actually my first year of law school that I started my private investigation agency. Uh, and uh, I did that for, for the last five years or so in the, uh, starting my practice. So when you got into that, um, were you actually working for somebody as a PI or you just went right from the get your own business? So my understanding when I got into the PI business is you get a, a in Florida, we call it a C license that you get your PI license and you go work for another PI. And, uh, once I got my C license, I started calling a bunch of PIs here in Florida, and I found out very quickly that that is not how it works. Most uh, PI agencies in Florida are relatively small. Very few of them want to carry a payroll, uh, and uh, the bulk of the work down here is done through subcontracting. And so I thought I was just going to end up working for someone else while I was in law school, and I found out very quickly that I would have to have my own uh, agency. Uh, I found a lot of people that wanted to work with me, uh, but they said it would all uh, be on a contracted basis. So I started my 
my own company. We got an agency license. And uh, before I knew it, um, I wasn't just uh, doing, you know, this contracted work for other PIs. I was now, you know, running a company advertising uh, and finding my own uh, my own private uh, clients as well as uh, the contracting that I did. Welcome to the big show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great, right? Accidental, accidental business owner. <laughs> the wonderful world of accounts receivables <laughs> and collections. Yeah. And, good and stuff. I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't think that that's what I wanted. I, I think a lot of your, your listeners who come from a law enforcement background, the idea of running a business, uh, you know, and having to deal with all these, these new issues instead of just doing the job, doing the thing that we're passionate about, uh, it can be very scary. But there's a lot of resources out there. Um, we have a great association here in Florida, uh, the Florida Association of Licensed Investigators. Uh, and the, the business knowledge um, specific to this industry that I obtained from, uh, you know, from going to those conferences, from, from networking with other agency owners, uh, was just tremendous. And it gave me a lot of the confidence I needed to, to start that agency and to be successful. Yeah, it's, it's really um, important to tap into your state associations and, and start networking and finding mentors. I mean, that, that's really the, the folks that end up making it in this business are the ones that are smart enough to you know, extend themselves and reach out and um, you know, form relationships with other people. I mean, it, it's only a good thing. It helps you get better. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's really good. So how did you decide um, that, uh, I guess you wanted to focus on, on the social media as far as putting together the, the, um, the ethics? Because, I mean, people hear ethics and you're just like, oh, great. <laughs> what can I do? Like, what work can I catch up on? <laughs> Maybe I'll skip that one. But I, I got to say, like, your presentation was actually, it was really great. And I was like, wow. Like, the time went by very quickly. I actually raised my hand and asked a few questions. And uh, it, it, was really, uh, it was really awesome. So how did you come to put that program together? Sure. I want to make sure I'm answering the right question now. So we're not asking, we're not talking about um, picking social media as a specialty, but about the, the topic that I selected for the presentation. Yeah. Well, why don't we knock off both of those? So why don't we take one at a time? How did you yeah. decide to come in, into that as a specialty? And then uh, how did you think to put together the ethics program? Sure. So social media is something that I just, I kind of fell into. Um, it, it might also have a little bit to do with with my age, one, I was 30 years old when I um, when I started in private investigation. Uh, so I grew up with social media. I was a, I think MySpace was the, the social media platform that uh, you know that I used when I was younger. Uh, I was around in high school and in community college when you couldn't actually join Facebook unless you were a member of certain universities. Right. Uh, they slowly rolled it out to specific universities, and uh, I wasn't uh, elite enough to. Well, that's to some, even that's some crazy uh, beta stuff right there, right? <laughs> that is the yeah, way it, it started. Was. Yep. It was. It started with the one university, and it slowly rolled out to universities, not you know, not even close to resembling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, what I remember that. So, but so I grew up with it. It was a big part of my, you know, my social network, and because I I understood the importance of it and the amount of information being shared on it. Uh, I always uh, thought to use it, even as a police officer, if I was looking for someone and I wanted to know if maybe they were still in town, uh, I would go to Facebook if I was trying to you know, serve a warrant, uh, if I had a stalking or domestic case where threats were being made online, I, I, you know, I, I learned how to collect uh, that, that evidence in a rudimentary way um, as an officer. And then 
as a private investigator, by the time I was doing that, you know, social media just with every passing year was becoming more and more critical. And because I was comfortable with social media, just from using it myself, uh, and that I had already kind of, you know, used it from an investigative standpoint, uh, I started incorporating it into a lot of my my cases. And eventually I, I found that, that I had a, you know, a strong interest in the, the field generally. Right. In your law practice, you focus on family law, correct? I do. Yeah. So I can see how social media would be important there. Uh, yeah, it was funny. I was talking to somebody recently and we were talking about, um, you know, Facebook and, and you know, reaching out to people and, and, you know, we're going to cover that later on in this program, right? <laughs> we're going to talk about all that, but the, you know, the challenges that you face and before there was any real guidelines on what was acceptable and what was not acceptable, you know, having those conversations like, Hey, I'm trying to get somebody and they're, they're really not paying attention to me, but the people around them, the people that are friends with them, they're like, hey, uh, do you mind like calling this person because they're contacting me now, <laughs> trying to get a hold of you, and I don't want to deal with that anymore. So please give this person uh, a call back. I thought that was really funny. Sure, the you know the role that it plays now is just very different than um, than before. It's, it's it's an essential part of I think a lot of investigation. Right, right. Uh, it definitely goes um, hand in hand. Putting the presentation together, like how, how did you come up with uh, with that idea? Sure. So last year I, I published a, an article um, with the Stetson Law Journal of Advocacy, which is available online. Uh, there's no charge to access it. Uh, I published an article called Friend Request, Legally and Ethically uh, Investigating the Jury. The idea came from some of the work I was doing. I was... Uh, Oh, we're being listened to. Did you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. Strange. <laughs> yeah, Siri is on the... <laughs> sounds, sounds like it's a Florida thing, man. <laughs> oh, hopefully she won't tell Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> I did the uh, article last year with the with the Stetson Law Journal of Advocacy because I was doing social media investigations of jurors for the for the purpose of uh, you know insurance defense trials. Uh, so I had this opportunity to to get into this this area specifically as it pertained to jury selection and to monitoring the jury throughout the course of the trial. And I had to ensure that, you know, that I was being compliant. I had the advantage at the time I started doing jury social media investigation, I had already been through uh, professional responsibility. One of the core uh, first year courses that law students take to familiarize themselves with the model rules of professional conduct promulgated by the American Bar Association that, you know, generally is the, the model that most states follow when drafting their rules with some changes. So I already could see as I was doing jury social media investigation that there were some ethical implications for the attorneys that, you know, that we were uh, contracting for. Uh, and I had to make sure that what I was doing was compliant. And so through my, my own efforts to do these types of investigations and you know, navigating the, the legal and ethical considerations of doing them, uh, I thought, oh, what a great, uh, you know, paper for my, my final year of law school. So uh, it was a, a paper I published as part of my my concentration in trial advocacy. Uh, it was later published by the school's uh, journal in advocacy. Right, right. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I just enjoy the subject. I think it's very interesting. It's constantly changing um, from... Uh, you know, the news of uh, things like Cambridge Analytica, uh, data breaches, increased uh, calls for consumer, uh, you know, for 
consumer privacy laws, uh, interference with uh, with elections by foreign governments uh, through the use of social media. Um, it's just a very, very interesting topic. And some of those news articles or news topics that I just described, they, they in turn impact how social media investigations are done because the platforms change right. when these things happen. Cambridge Analytica changed uh, how, you know, Facebook uh, handled uh, data and integrations with other it really did services. how yeah. they yep, yep. how how they shared data with with other providers the russian interference with the 2016 election through use of fake uh, fake accounts and content on facebook dramatically changed right. how facebook uh, wrote their user agreements the terms of service that apply to to everyone who who logs on to the platform and so it's just uh uh, compared to some of the other areas of investigation where they don't change as much, uh, it's just a very, very dynamic uh, field. Yeah, I would I say uh, calling it, calling it fluid uh, isn't really doing its service because it really does change all the time. Uh, and, and I remember when we were down in Florida, I was talking to you about um, how I attended a, a social media um, a training for the New York State Trial Lawyers Association. I uh, was able to sit in and, and, and watch it. And it was being taught by a judge who was you know, 75 years old and uh, some older um, attorneys that uh, didn't really understand. They would tell you they didn't understand it. Not, you know, I have some uh, attorney client friends of mine that are, that are up there in years. They don't like when, I, when people uh, dog being old and not knowing how to use a computer. But these people like, would tell, like I sat down there and they're, they're like, yeah, we really don't understand it too well. Um, they brought out a couple of opinions, but you know these were the people that were supposed to be the authority on this stuff, and they had no idea. I mean, I was waiting for the judge to like you know look for her jitterbug to call her grandchildren. It was uh, it was terrible, but uh, it, because it is changing so much and there is so much out there, it was very refreshing to see your presentation. And I, I was so happy when I saw somebody was videotaping it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping that you're producing it and it's going to be available because it was, uh, it was really a, a, a cool thing to, to sit through. Well, great. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And yeah, it sounds like you've, you've seen the same thing I've seen, that there's, it's certainly a hot topic within the legal field right. with judges and with lawyers. And, uh, and I, I talk a lot about that in the presentation, that it constantly gets brought up at the CLE event. There are right. now technology requirements in most states uh, for lawyers who are, you know, satisfying their continuing legal education credits. They want to ensure that that technology is part of those requirements because now it's a part of the competency rules right. uh, that apply to most uh, most lawyers. I believe it's about 37 of the 50 states have adopted word for word the American Bar Association competency requirements as it pertains to technology. Yeah, we're gonna um, we're gonna so, we're gonna jump into all that. that. That I know that that was a good meat 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 meaty part of your uh, presentation. Um, so we're definitely gonna gonna jump in here. So I think what we're gonna do real quick is we're just gonna step out real quick and take a a break, and then when we come back, we'll jump into some of the uh, the nuggets from that presentation uh, that I thought were real cool. So sit tight, folks. We'll be right back. Kelmar Global is a proud sponsor of PI Perspectives, a leader in the industry. Kelmar Global has been successfully conducting all types of investigations for our clients since 1989, specializing in surveillance as well as corporate investigations, insurance fraud, and cases for law firms. Kelmar Global is licensed throughout the U.S. Contact us at kelmarglobal.com. K-E-L-M-A-R global.com. 
And welcome back. We are here with Brandon Fortuno, who is talking about uh, social media investigations and the ethics behind it. So welcome back, Brandon. Thank you. Okay, so uh, the presentation here. Uh, basically, when uh, when you brought it to us down there, we were talking about uh, reviewing the legal limitations on investigators and the ethical constraints and the obligations and things we're supposed to cover on that. And you brought out some really cool statistics. It was talking about the the amount of um, social media sites that, that people are on, the percentages and, and all that. And I have in front of me, so I'm just going to cite it real quick. Uh, it was 74% of uh, daily users are using Facebook. Uh, 63% of the social media users are using Instagram. 61 Snapchat, 51% YouTube, and 42% on Twitter. Basically, your point was, you know, if, if you have a subject that you're looking to um, do a workup on, there's a good chance they have a social media account and they're using one of the, the big accounts over there, right? Yes, that's correct. So some of the numbers that, that we used were from the Pew Research Center survey from, from 2019. And it's basically... 69% of users, I'm sorry, of U.S. adults uh, use Facebook. And of those 69% of U.S. Uh, adults that are on Facebook, 74% of those users are daily users. Right, okay. Um, so yeah. it is such a huge of the average, uh, you know, American, adult American's life that you have to pretty much assume that if you have a subject, if you have a, a witness, uh, who you're investigating, you, you almost assume that they have these social media presences. Whereas, you know, in the past, you might just look for it and, and go, well, if it's there, it's there. You can pretty much assume it's there right. until you, you know, until you prove otherwise. The other thing is YouTube. YouTube is actually uh, almost 75% um, of uh, U.S. adults use YouTube. And, and that generally means that that they're logging into YouTube with a Gmail uh, email address or some other Google login credential. Right. Uh, and they can chat on there. They can express their opinions. They can create their own playlists. Most of these are public by default. And so right. there's a lot of great content out there. Right. We all love our kitten videos, right? Yep. <laughs> so really like uh, the thing to focus on here, uh, you know, what we wanted to talk about today was just the legality of, of gathering that information. So I think in order to do that, let's talk, well, touch on the federal hacking laws, just so folks understand potentially what kind of trouble they could get into. Sure. So there's three laws that I think most people would want to consider if they're doing this. And this is a great place to just throw in my, my quick lawyerly disclaimer. This is oh, yes, please do. To, <laughs> yeah, this isn't intended to be a substitute for legal advice. Okay? Yes, sir. The type of things we're talking about you really do need to get your own legal advice, personalized legal advice specific right. to your jurisdiction by an attorney that you have a, a relationship with. Okay. But I, uh, this does provide people with a good jumping off point uh, to at least spark their interest. And hopefully uh, by the end of this uh, you know, podcast, if, if they're setting policy uh, for their agency or doing these types of investigations, you know, that they will reach out to an attorney and make sure the methods they use are in compliance with their local laws. Sure. Um, but the three the three federal hacking laws that most users should be aware of is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is mostly, you know, an anti-hacking statute. Um, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the ECPA, uh, which is kind of a modernization of the Wiretap uh, Act, and then the Stored Communications Act. 
uh, which kind of dovetails a little into the the CFAA. All of those, a violation of can carry a one to five year imprisonment um, and uh, very heavy um, fines and uh, and civil remedies for victims of hacking, victims of of wire uh, wire intercepts, uh, you know, or, or victims who have had stored communications access. So uh, we don't have to get too deep into this. I just like to mention it because um, most private investigators wouldn't consider going as far as, you know, accessing, uh, you know, servers or accounts without permission, but great examples of, of how a private investigator might find themselves uh, stepping on these laws would be, uh, for example, uh, you know, accessing someone's computer remotely through the use of software. Um, even if that software was provided to you by someone else, like a spouse or, you know, someone who has access to that computer, um, using someone else's login credential, um, pretensing. Uh, you really want to ensure when you're doing a social media investigation that you're acquiring this information the right way. One, because you want it to be admissible, uh, and two, because you don't want to end up in uh, in jail or with uh, hefty fines. There's no one piece of information uh, that that's worth it. There's no one case, you know, that's worth your integrity or your freedom. Yeah, I think a lot of these um, providers there they they um, they hide behind their their terms of services, right? So they have these policies that are out there. Let's face it. 75 to 80%, I would even say maybe even 90%, don't even read it, right? They just click and keep it moving. Uh, but there's definitely language in there that you got to you gotta look for. And um, talk to me a little bit about United States versus Drew, because I think that that kind of pushed that, um, uh, I guess, the move to the, um, the the terms of service. Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. The United States versus uh, Drew case is, um, you know, it's over 10 years old. Uh, it, uh, the, it was a California case from 2009 and this was a a mom who went on myspace and cyberbullied basically an enemy of her uh, of her daughter someone who had been uh, for lack of a better term talking smack uh, from what the mom heard the fake account friend requested this 13 year old uh, and we just used to access information on the myspace page of this 13 year old that was not visible non-friends okay so the big issue here was that and this is before cyberbullying laws by the way so there really wasn't a better law to to prosecute this under so the big issue here was this part the part where they friend requested the user with a fake account to get access to content to data that was not publicly available which is exceeding level of access at least that was the theory that they pursued under the cfa the CFAA, because one of the, th- the things the CFAA prohibits is ex- exceeding, you know, your uh, your access level, gaining, you know, lawful access to a system, but then doing things to exceed that access level. Um, I don't agree that that's, <laughs> that that qualifies, you know, uh, sending a, a friend request to someone, it's somehow exceeding access, but um, you're, you're going to kind of see why by the end of the case, why why that's the theory that they went with. This mother used the fake account to goad the 13-year-old into committing suicide. Right. The 13-year-old ultimately did. And yeah. So it was, a, it was a horrible tragedy. Yeah, I remember, yeah, and, I remember when that and happened. We, and we didn't have a cyber, there weren't cyberbullying laws. 
back then. So it was one of these, they needed a, they needed a, a charge to fit the crime. And ultimately, federal prosecutors charged this mother with the CFAA. And the grounds for that was saying that the mother accessed MySpace's servers to obtain information regarding the, the 13-year-old victim in breach of MySpace's terms of service. Quite a stretch. Um, right. And the mother was ultimately convicted of a misdemeanor account of CFAA for exceeding authorized access. A motion for acquittal was later granted. Um, that rooting this criminal violation of the CFAA in the violation of the terms of service would essentially render that statute void for vagueness. It would give law enforcement and prosecutors way too much discretion right. uh, in who to charge and when to charge. And uh, it's a great example of, you know, of selective prosecution because this mother did such a horrible thing, such a morally reprehensible thing, uh, that they just wanted to see some form of accountability. Although I don't think you'll ever see an investigator do something, uh, you know, a licensed investigator do something as horrible as his mother did. I, I hope not. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it be a yeah, problem. You know, if, if, if that's the case, then they're in the wrong profession. But it's I, I, a I would hope a, a of, human being wouldn't do that, let alone an investigator, but hey. Yep. But you can imagine the public outcry that there sure. was to do something, to charge something. They wanted justice uh, against this um, against this mother who did this thing, right. and uh, and so they did. And so it's a great example of you. You certainly don't want to be a, a victim of the times. You don't want to be uh, a target in the public eye because you got caught up in the wrong case. And so I, I can easily see other cases where an investigator could be involved and something tragic happens. Uh, let's say, for example, a, you know, a shooting results um, or some other, you know, uh, bodily harm or death results. And they're looking for someone to blame. Um, there's those cases are out there. And the last thing you want is to put yourself uh, within what I would call striking distance right. of a law enforcement officer uh, or a, prosecutor uh, by violating uh, these uh, these statutes. And this is an example of how a violation of terms of service could potentially put you within that range. Now, this, this case ended with an acquittal because of the vagueness of using terms of service to constitute a CFAA charge, but that doesn't mean that it can't happen again. Yeah. And so investigators should consider uh, the terms of service and be familiar with the terms of service so the I, platform that I, they're collecting on. I think you bring up a really great point that it, because it is the Wild West out there, I think litigators are looking for opportunities to put their stamp on something, right? To put their mark, to have that um, the laws actually or, or decisions or opinions written based upon what what happened. So that, that's, a, that's a great point, right? They're just itching to find that in that case to attach themselves to to get the, the laws written because it is so fluid and things are changing. That's, that's a really excellent point. Well, I don't, I don't know that it's, that it's that, I don't want to say nefarious, but the reality is if you find yourself on the wrong end of the newsreel, you're, you're going to get a lot of unwanted attention. And right. so you want your practices, uh, your policies of, of how you collect evidence of how you engage in these investigations uh, to be, you know, beyond reproach. Right. So that if you do get that undue scrutiny, whether it's from law enforcement, a prosecutor, 
whether it's from the licensing and regulating body for investigators in your state. Uh, you want to make sure that uh, when they, you know, if someone comes knocking, uh, that you can justify the the methods that you use, the approach that you use, uh, and show that it wasn't just you doing whatever you could, that it's thoughtful, that it's, you know, methodical. For example, by having a policy. Right, a uh, handbook or something. That yeah, that, that was a point you yeah. made I thought was great, right? Develop clear policies uh, on your methods, on how you conduct your, your social media investigations, right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, if you ever have to testify or something uh, like that, you, you have it, it's there, you know, as long as you're, you're sticking to it, if you don't stick to it, then maybe you got a problem. <laughs> so absolutely. When I started in, when I started in private investigation in Florida, they had a GPS log coming down the, the pipes on when you couldn't, couldn't place a tracking device on someone's car. Right. Uh, we, we held off on doing any uh, GPS tracking services until the law passed. Uh, to ensure that we knew what the final language would be so that we didn't have any ongoing cases when it landed right. on the book. And then once it landed, I had to take the statute and very you know, very carefully go, okay, when is it permitted and when is it not? And then develop a policy so that we know exactly what type of cases we would be willing to employ this tool in and what types of safeguards we would want right. uh, to ensure that we were compliant with the statute. Because social media law changes, so regularly because the terms of service change investigators should consider what are they willing to do and not do and consider boiling it down to a policy, even if it's only a page or two. Sure. So that if you do get subpoenaed, um, you know, to testify to social media evidence that you've collected, if for no other reason than just being effective in court, you can produce that policy. Right. You can show that you're not willy nilly, going out and just collecting everything you can find. That's true. But you have standards and protocols that are in place to ensure that you're doing it ethically and legally. Yeah, and one of the other things you were talking about um, was that uh, just because there's something out there that allows us to get some good information and something we can develop and, and can really get what we need doesn't necessarily mean that it's legal for us to use it. So it's like ha- holding yourself to that higher standard and, and understanding that, you know, because of our relation to what we're getting the information for, you know, being an, an extension of the attorney who hired us potentially. Right. So if, that, if that's the scenario, um, the attorney hires you, they're bound by certain rules. You're bound by them also because they hired you. Right. And being aware of that. Um, but holding yourself up to those higher standards and saying, wow, I could go to this website or get this, or I could get this off the dark web and, and all that. But is this going to come back to bite me later? Like maybe I probably shouldn't do that. Right. Being able to, to have that uh, question, right? To have the nice flow chart if the answer is is no, don't go there, <laughs> right? Sure, and this, this is kind of how I describe that. Your ethical constraints should determine which tools you select for the job, not the other way around. Many of the investigative tools and techniques uh, that are viable outside of litigation come perilous when employed in a legal investigation. Right. So you really have to let your you know, your ethics guide your tools and, and how you use them versus just going to the max, going to the limit. There has to be some constraint. There has to be some proportionality. Yeah, you want you want to have a chair when the music stops, right? Absolutely. Right. Um, okay, so let's uh, roll forward here to the um, to the ABA, right? The, the American Bar Association. Um, and I think um, as investigators who work with attorneys, it's really good. It's always been my experience, you know, to, to understand the rules and laws that the attorneys are bound by, 
uh, the policies and procedures that they're bound by because, you know, we want to be able to get them what they can use, right? So um, the uh, the model rules of professional conduct, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the American Bar Association, which compared to your state bar association, they don't have the authority to regulate the licensing of lawyers. Every state has their own bar association, and that's how lawyers are regulated. However, the American Bar Association uh, provides a ton of great knowledge and guidance uh, to those bar associations, uh, especially when it comes to helping with model, uh, model rules. Um, so the American Bar Association uh, publishes the model rules of professional conduct, which are created with the, you know, the input and participation of, you know, members of all of the bars from those different states. Uh, and what they do is they essentially create a model uh, for the ethical rules regulating attorneys. Uh, and states will decide uh, to, you know, to adopt those rules either in, in full uh, with some addition, with some additions, or with some modification. So, if you were looking at kind of a national model for how to do these types of investigations ethically, the American Bar Association's Model Rules of Professional Conduct is a great place to go because of how widely adopted they are by uh, each state. Most states uh, are adopting uh, the the bulk of these rules uh, as they're promulgated. Um, if they modify them, they might add a little bit. They might tailor it more to their needs uh, or their their jurisprudence. But in general, um, they're widely adopted. And so, if you you know if you have a private investigation company and you're you're doing work in all fifty states, uh, it's a it's a great high level view of ethical constraints for for American lawyers. Right. Um, but if you're practicing in specific states, uh, you really should be looking at the the rules for for each state. Yeah, that's a that's a good uh, piece of advice right there, right? Getting the uh, the the overview watch, but also going and and digging down deeper in the in the states you specifically work in. Um, I, I think you can't go wrong, right? If you understand that way. And if I remember correctly, the adaptation you were talking about of the um, of uh, the technology uh, competence. Uh, something like 37 states, right, have adopted uh, the statement on technology competence as of December 2019. That, that's correct. So Rule 1.1 of the American Bar Association's model rules is about competence, and it just covers the, that the lawyer shall provide competent representation, and that includes legal knowledge, skill, thoroughness, and preparation reasonably necessary for the representation. In the comments, uh, the Rule 1.1 uh, they kind of expand on that and say to maintain the requisite knowledge and skill, a lawyer should keep abreast of changes in the law and its practice. And here I emphasize, including the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology. Right. So that, state, that statement, including risks and benefits associated with relevant technology, uh, has been uh, adopted as, as written by 37 states uh, right. as of December of last year and, and the, many of the other states that did not adopt it as promulgated have adopted something you know similar or something more tailored uh, to them. So the legal profession recognizes you know the the need for technological competence and is making it part of their um, you know their thoroughness and preparation. 
requirements. So uh, that's one of the reasons attorneys are now being required to get technology continuing legal education credit. Yeah, it's definitely necessary, right? Um, so I know some of the feedback uh, slides that you had used in your presentation, um, I wanted to talk to them uh, uh, on them a little bit, right? So uh, one of them says, but I'm not the attorney, right? So if the investigator, investigator says, well, I'm not the attorney, I don't have to worry about that, right? We know that's a big no-no. Sure. And I've heard this at conferences before um, where someone will say, well, I'm not the attorney. This doesn't apply to me. Uh, well, you're right in a sense uh, that uh, you don't have a bar card, so you're probably not violating a bar rule. Um, but uh, Model Rule uh, 5.3, Responsibilities Regarding Non-Lawyer Assistance, specifically addresses this. It says, uh, with respect to a non-lawyer employed or retained uh, uh, by or associated with a lawyer, uh, the supervising lawyer shall make reasonable efforts to ensure that the non-lawyer's conduct is compatible with the professional obligations of the lawyer. Uh, and then it goes on to kind of explain, you know, the scope of that. If lawyers are ordering uh, these things, if they're ratifying these things, right. uh, or if they're not uh, avoiding or mitigating consequences of these things, uh, they can get in trouble with the bar. And it doesn't matter if you work directly for the lawyer. Retained would mean the contract investigator, where this attorney is really your customer and it's an arm's length, you know, business relationship, but yet you've been retained for the purpose of conducting a legal investigation or for assisting them uh, in the litigation somehow with your investigation. You have, in fact, implicated that attorney's rules. So even though you're not going to get in trouble if you're not the lawyer, you can get your attorney in trouble right. by doing things that the lawyer otherwise could not do themselves. So your behavior is, in a sense, constrained by those same constraints that are on the lawyer because if you don't so constrain yourself, you could uh, cause the lawyer to get a bar complaint. You could cause the evidence to get suppressed uh, within the discretion of the court. You may have uh, breached your contract uh, with the attorney, your contract for investigative services. Um, you have to provide those services within the standard of care you know, of a reasonably prudent investigator. And it's probably not reasonably prudent for a legal investigator to do things that, um, that violate the ethical constraints of their lawyer. Yeah, so this, this very, sounds like um, all things that uh, your, your general liability carrier doesn't want to hear about, <laughs> right? <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> it's going to cause, yeah, and, cause you problems with your liability insurance. And look at those exceptions in your, uh, in your uh, general liability policy. I'm, right. I'm not sure what, uh, what they even do cover these days. If you look at how long the list of, of exclusions are. And so mm -hmm. absolutely, this is a, this is a case where, uh, potentially you could incur civil liability, uh, if you did something that, that detrimentally affected the litigation, uh, that detrimentally affected the, uh, the lawyers, uh, you know, bar licensure. Right. Um, and, and just from a business standpoint, forgetting about the legal and ethical implications, uh, we want to take care of our customers. Right. We, our, our attorneys are often our customers, and uh, and we want to give them the absolute best service, and that includes them being able to go to sleep at night, not wondering if they're going to get a bar complaint or if they're going to uh, you know, get sued because of something their investigator did. So attorneys really want to know that you're 
you know, complying with the rules and the laws, you know, absent the, the Avenatis of the world, right. um, you, you can expect that your attorney wants you to be compliant. And it's a great business opportunity to show them, you know, through doing a little research on the, the state bar association's rules, uh, you can show your attorneys that you know what their obligations are yep. and that your investigations are compliant so, so that they have that peace of mind and you can kind of hold yourself out there as yeah. a, as an investigator who's who's focused on their on attorney client so that that's another great point and that's something i do right so in in 2010 in new york state there was a an opinion that came out from the new york state bar association that does talk about these very facts right that the attorney uh, or the investigator is an extension of the attorney and what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. So um, what I do when I send my marketing material, I'll bring a copy with it or I go to a meeting. It's like, hey, I, I know you probably know this already, but here, here's something for you to read. Um, even like in, in my constant context, I send out to my attorneys like, hey, did you know this? Or, or maybe you forgot about this and you, you just reference it. It really goes a long way. It gives you credibility uh, that you're taking the time to understand you know, what you can and can't do and that you're looking not to get your client in trouble, right? You're looking, you don't want to cause them another headache or, or things like that. So that's definitely a, um, a great, uh, a great point here. You know, I wanted to circle back to something you had mentioned earlier um, with regards to jury research and let's touch base and talk about that a little bit on, um, you know, what's ethical behind that. Um, I've had some experience doing it. Um, I, I know you have some experience doing it as well. I remember we were talking about it down in Florida, but talk to me a little bit about uh, doing jury research and um, things to watch out for and um, you know how not to go over the line on them. Sure. So if someone is doing um, specifically um, jury social media investigations, um, there are uh, several books out there that you can look at. And um, I would just refer you to my uh my article with the Stetson Law Journal of Advocacy because I, I reference all those uh, sources in the footnotes. Um, but there's a lot of great materials on this niche area of, uh, of social media investigation. And uh, in addition to uh, my article on it, uh, you can look at the Model Rules of Professional Conduct, Rule 3.5, talks about impartiality and decorum of the tribunal. It says a lawyer shall not seek to influence a judge, juror, or prospective juror uh, or other official by means prohibited by law. And then goes on to say communicate ex parte with such a person during the proceeding unless authorized to do so by law or court order. Um, there's a American Bar Association opinion, number 466, came out in 2014. Uh, that clarifies that unless limited by law or court order, a lawyer may review a juror or potential jurors, which may include postings by the juror or potential juror in advance of and during trial, but a lawyer may not communicate directly or through another with a juror or potential juror. And a, a key form of communication that is not permitted is the friend request. You're essentially asking them, you're asking that juror for access uh, to more information than they've chosen to make publicly available. Uh, and uh, the American Bar Association says that that would be a rule violation of uh, ex parte communication. Um, so there's some great American Bar Association guidance on, uh, on juries, but 
jury selection and, uh, and monitoring of jury social media during trial, uh, that's going to be very specific to your state, uh, your state rules and your local rules. If you're in federal court, the, the local district court likely has rules uh, that uh, pertain to the handling of, of jurors, of juror uh, lists and what you can do with the names, uh, what, what type of things you can do in investigating the jury. Um, and the State Bar Association may have, similar to the American Bar Association Opinion 466, they may have actually promulgated a, a formal opinion dealing with the subject. Um, because it has kind of come up state by state by state where they said, okay, we have these rules that deal with communicating with the jury, but most people are interpreting those rules based on what's happening in the courtroom, not thinking about what other forms of, you know, uh, of jury contact would be considered impermissible because it comes up. A great example of that is LinkedIn. There was a, a case where uh, a LinkedIn notification uh, showed a juror that a associate from one of the uh, one of the firms that was representing a party in front of that jury uh, that they had been looking at this juror's Facebook account. In the, or I'm sorry, their LinkedIn, LinkedIn right. account. Yep. And the juror thought that this was impermissible and, and rightfully presented it to the court when when court resumed. And uh, of course, the judge could have explained right then that, oh, no, that's okay. You know, this is the normal part of their, you know, of their process. Uh, and uh, it's not a problem, except that nobody told the judge that they were doing a social media investigation of the jurors, uh, which brings up another point. It, it is a good idea if you're going to do these jury uh, social media investigations to tell the judge that it's going on, not just because there's that remote possibility that, that, uh, someone could find out that it's going on by inadvertent disclosure of uh, by the platform, but also because what happens when you do find something that you need to present for the judge? Right. What happens if you find out you have a runaway jury situation? If you remember right. that movie, um, <laughs> where someone is hijack someone is hijacking the jury. If you find that out, right. or if you find out that you have a, a a lying juror who just blatantly lied to get on the jury and completely biased against your your side. Uh, or any side. And that never happens. <laughs> I've never no, seen no, that happen not. before. <laughs> never. You know, so if you if you find that smoking gun on the jury's social media, what good is it right. if you're going to have to shock the court by telling them that you're doing this? Now, that's not always the case. Some, some judges may expect it, especially if they've dealt with a lot of high-end litigation, right. um, complex litigation. They know that this stuff is, is common and the practice is more widely accepted. But, you know, there's no reason to hide from it. You should tell your, your attorney should be telling the judge prior to, to trial that they have the intention to do this. That way there's an opportunity for the other side to object and the court is on notice so that if you do find something that you need to bring to the court's attention, right. they're not learning about your investigation for the first time. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. That's a good point. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to wind down here. How do folks get a hold of you if they have more questions or, or want to learn more about this stuff? Sure. I'm available online at www.fortuno.law. Um, there's uh, a link to my article uh, on my profile on the website, and uh, my number's on there as well. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm generally interested in this topic, and right. so uh, I'm, I'm always happy to, to answer questions where I can. They might not be specific to your state if you're not in Florida, 
Um, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting topic and, and I'm always interested to hear what people are thinking about it. Yeah. And we'll have that information on the show notes as well. So Brendan Haywes, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, um, you know, come on and, and talk about this stuff. I agree with you. I'm fascinated by this stuff. You know, it, it, it excites me and scares me at the same time, you know, because it's just always changing. Really what you need to do is you need to be ready for, you know, Facebook to shut the API off again and, you know, everything to change again. And, and you always got to be one step ahead of this stuff. So, so knowing what you can and can't do, I think helps you stay one step ahead of this stuff as well. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a moving target for sure. Right. Um, but that, that makes it right for, for newcomers, for PIs who are, who are interested in this area, who are excited by it. Right. Um, it's, it's so constantly changing that, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of space in this field and uh, it certainly won't, won't bore you. Sure, sure. All right, man. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you everybody for listening and uh, tune in for the next episode and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for checking out this episode and thanks to Brandon for bringing some great knowledge on ethics. The perfect balance of a lawyer and investigator. Be sure to keep him in mind for any family law issues you have in Florida. Thanks again to Kelmar Global for supporting the show. Also, a special thank you to our sponsor, Crosstracks. Don't forget the offer code PIP20 when you visit their site. Next week, Matt is joined by Kelly Riddle. Kelly takes time out of his busy conference speaking schedule to sit down with Matt about domestic investigations. This is an episode you won't want to miss. On behalf of Matt Spare, thank you for downloading and subscribing to PI Perspectives.